2: From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. The Future Happened is a virtual exhibition on view now from Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta. The show examines how design and art deepen our relationship with music. Ahead of virtual live performances with DJ Amp Live and Imogen Heap. Later this hour, we'll hear about designing the future of music from the show's co-curator, Lawrence Azeroth. First, Voice of Freedom, a documentary about the great singer Marian Anderson. The film is part of the series American Experience. Joining me now are two scholars who appear in the documentary: Adrian Lent Smith is professor of History, African and African-American Studies at Duke University, and Professor Alicia Lola-Jones, whose specialty is in the areas of folklore and Musicology at Indiana University. Welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're delighted to be here. For those
2: unfamiliar with Marian Anderson, would you explain her rise from a six-year-old known as the baby contralto to become the magnificent singer ultimately described as the voice of this century? Sure. Um,
3: Marian Anderson was someone whose rise was powered by a formidable inherent talent, coupled with some really important interventions by supportive community and mentors, and ultimately training. Although we should say. So she grew up in the Philadelphia community, known within the Black community in Philadelphia for her singing skills. And her community wanted to send her to the Philadelphia Musical Academy to train. And she wasn't even allowed to audition or apply because she was Black. So she was someone with a tremendous inherent talent who's career could easily have been derailed at the very beginning because of the sort of arbitrary cruelty of segregation.
1: I think also, um, as Professor Adrian has mentioned, it's important to talk about the communities that she had in order to make her musical formation happen, her church, the civic organizations. Uh, the National Association of Negro Musicians, we could list several networks that were involved in her formation. And as a result of of this village, this national and eventually international village, she was able to enter onto the world stage in a moment in time where African-Americans were not permitted to ascend through Uh, the formal channels at all. And so it's it's remarkable to see how she became the voice of African Americans and and the voice really of the nation.
2: Yeah. Did the Philadelphia Academy of Music ever issue an apology?
1: I believe uh, where she applied went out of business. And then there was some repurposing that occurred. So yeah, I'm unaware of an apology. I also
3: think that there are a lot of times when institutions don't apologize because they don't always know their own histories or the facts of their own histories. We'll talk probably a little bit later about the Daughters of the American Revolution who barred Anderson from performing in Constitution Hall. And they developed an understanding of that decision as it being Washington, D.C. law or municipal policy rather than their own policy that they enacted and enforced.
2: Unbelievable. Sounds convenient. Way too convenient. Beyond classical music lovers, Marian Anderson is most famous for her performance in 1939 at the Lincoln Memorial in front of 75,000 people. Before we get to that, would you talk about how the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in 1919 fell short?
1: Wow, I think the dedication um, really was a sobering moment in history to revisit through the documentary, largely because it actually resembles some of what we're seeing today in terms of Uh, the erecting of memorials and statues and how there are many narratives associated with our politicians and historic figures. But in that moment, Lincoln was re-inscribed and redefined in terms of his connection to the Civil War and to white nationalist values. During that particular moment, there was a parade of uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan, I mean, miles of, uh, of this representation to celebrate a man who has been said to uh, be instrumental in the emancipation of those who were enslaved. And so it's, it's really interesting how people remember the moments differently. And her moment at the Lincoln Memorial was a, a way of reclaiming that space and reclaiming um, the significance of, of President Lincoln.
0: Genius,
2: genius draws no color line. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor.
3: Dedication in 1922 was segregated and with a tiny set aside space for black people. The one of the few black speakers, Robert Russo Mogan, who was the head of Tuskegee had a speech in which he evoked the idea of Lincoln as the great emancipator and said that his vision would not be um, fulfilled or completed until America gave black citizens the rights to which they were entitled. That part of his speech was censored so that all he was left to give in this dedication was a kind of anodyne, generic evocation of a Lincoln without principles and teeth. And that kind of stands in for the ways in which the memory of the Civil War had been stripped of its emancipatory power and just made to be a story about white people fighting about abstractions.
2: Uh. The Chicago Defender, major black newspaper, urged a boycott of the Lincoln Memorial. (laughs) Professor Lent Smith, the year 1919 was horrific with racial violence, and Marian Anderson was unwittingly caught up in it during a trip to Chicago. How did she manage in what you describe as a powder keg. You
3: know, she was going to give what was really her first concert, and she basically had to wait out a riot, right? The the National Association of Negro Musicians, they didn't want to cancel it, but this is literally a city in which people are being attacked on the street. As I think I mentioned in the documentary, there are sort of horrible and searing images of Black folks being set on fire. There are Black soldiers who've gone to their armory to get weapons to defend their neighborhoods and and street corners. And all of these are happening as Anderson is kind of tucked into a room waiting for her chance to sing in this occasion that she, you know, kind of happened into in this moment in the red summer of 1919 in which violence was, you know, all over the nation, and horrific. And it was really white mobs, white-led racial terror.
2: Here in Atlanta, we commemorate an event each year called the Atlanta Music Festival, which began in 1910 as the Atlanta Colored Music Festival. Professor Jones, too few people know that early in the 20th century, there was a Black audience for classical music and accomplished Black classical musicians. Will you elaborate, please?
1: Oh, I well, I stand proudly in that legacy of Black musicians who were trained in Western European concert musics and Western musics of the United States, there has been a thriving community of African Americans who have participated in the scene um, for as long as formal education in music has been available. Um, we can look back as far as the Fish Jubilee singers who in many ways represented the sound of the United States over and against traditions, uh, harmful traditions like the blackface minstrelsy, Um, music that we know of. Uh, The Fitz Jubilee singers were uh, the the group that Roland Hayes pointed to, um, who was covered in the documentary, as being responsible for instilling in him the importance of performing the Negro spiritual. And these uses of our folk traditions on the concert stage have been a way that we've personalized our presence throughout the 20th and 21st century. And I will add that Marian Anderson was very, very intentional about incorporating not only the quote-unquote standard repertoire that is expected of a recitalist or concert artist, she also included her consciousness as an African-American woman who had access to new music. Uh, by um, various composers. One of whom I've written about is Florence Price, who is experiencing a renaissance presently and who was the composer that she closed her recital with on that that celebrated uh, 1939 recital.
2: In 1923, Marian Anderson made her first recording for RCA Victor's singing Negro Spirituals arranged by the composer and renowned baritone Harry Burley. Why was that extraordinary?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, Again, it's yet another signifier of a longstanding tradition Uh, Harry T. Burley was a pioneer, if you will, in um, the arranged compositions of um, Negro spirituals. He was a part of a cadre of musicians at the, the turn of the century who were seeking ways to make a case for an American music, music of the people, Uh, that recognized and on some level in in his estimation of what uh, good education was, on some level elevating the music. And to this day, I will tell you that African-American concert artists often get that anthology of music as their initiation, if you will. He remains an important figure for what Americanness means from an African-American perspective. Yes, it's very important.
2: How was her recording received?
1: Oh, it it is still to this day a legendary and landmark recording because it was the first of its kind. It was a struggle, really, to get access to that sort of exposure in, in the emerging technology. I know that without, throughout curricula, um, that particular uh, recording is still heralded as a, a milestone for African-American representation globally.
2: Professors Alicia Lola Jones and Adrian Lent smith discussing the PBS documentary Voice of Freedom. We'll be back with more after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. On WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsus. Thank you for listening. We're back with Adrian Lent Smith and Alicia Lola Jones, two professors featured prominently in the PBS documentary Voice of Freedom about the illustrious singer Marian Anderson. Here, Professor Lent Smith explains why the great tenor Roland Hayes was crucial to Marian Anderson's life. So
3: Roland Hayes was a famous and celebrated tenor, an internationally known musician in his, or singer in his own right, who, when Marian Anderson was still a girl, before she had even tried out or tried to go to music school, recognized her talent Offered himself as a mentor and a supporter, introducing her to other supporters, bringing her along and encouraging her. And really, in a way that I think is quite lovely, helping her to imagine that she could be a singer, right? That she could do, do something with this talent that she had. And in the 1920s, as she was you know, pursuing training, building a career... He continued to support her. And after she had this sort of debacle of a concert in New York City where she received poor reviews and felt crushed, Hayes was one of the people who encouraged her to go to Europe and to continue her training there. Yeah,
2: in 1927, she sailed for England. What did she discover about life as a Black person in London? You know,
3: so you hear all of these stories of people going overseas, Black folks going overseas and realizing the particularity of the form of racial order that they had grown up in and around. And she gets some of that. London is more open than a lot of the places she'd been traveling in the U.S. At the same time, it has its own empire and its own racial uh, dynamics around African descended people. So she f- gets some space to kind of play with being herself unfettered, but she also has it in the midst of this kind of fervent and growing anti-colonial and on some level, pan africanist politics. She'd travel a lot of other places besides London where she was even more free. And as I think Alicia and other folks in the the documentary describe, she kind of was able to get her swerve on a little bit, both as a singer and as a woman. (laughs)
2: <laughs> she especially enjoyed performing in Scandinavia, touring for seven months, the documentary points out. Why did she feel free and at home in those Scandinavian countries?
1: Wow. I mean, she was, she was, her instrument was well received. I, you know, for the musician, I, I have to say that. Her journey really parallels what um, musicians do to this day in terms of um, making their way through the very same countries and specifically targeting the Salzburg Festival, which um, really is the backdrop of the movie we have come to love, The Sound of Music. I can recall visiting Salzburg and in many ways recalling her narrative through a similar journey. I could, see, I could see how she would fall in love with not only the vistas, but also the cultural significance of music making and music of the people, folk music arts. And her vocal qualities are already sort of audible in that region of Europe. So in many ways, uh, she was made for that landscape and that soundscape and really set a a path that musicians follow to this day and celebrate to this day
2: her vocal range was contralto what distinguishes that type of voice
1: the contralto is a rare vocal designation among women it is the lowest fach to use a german term for the singer and it sits lower than uh, the mezzo-soprano in terms of a a soloist designation or uh, the conventional alto range that we are accustomed to and overlaps with the the tenor range. So uh, she was not only unique as a recitalist of folk music and art music traditions, but she was unique in terms of the velvety quality within her voice and the, the lower range that she was able to, to get as a, a musician.
2: So she came of age personally as well as professionally in Europe, and a turning point came with meeting the impresario Saul Hurok. What did that mean for Marian Anderson's career?
3: Well, Saul Hirok was a great supporter of her. He treated her, at least, you know, as the documentary says, as an equal, right? Or at least as a partner, perhaps not as an equal. He's also a marketing genius. So yes. uh, Alicia mentioned the Salzburg Festival, which becomes this really fascinating site in, you know, the sort of story of the anti-fascist and fascist 1930s, where she's gone to sing, but in this moment when Nazis and fascists are rewriting the racial codes, she's barred from performing at the festival, but has a concert anyway, that all of the anti-fascist musicians come to, right, sort of flock to support her and to make this a moment of anti-fascist politics, including Tuscany, the conductor, who hears her sing, comes up to her and says, a voice like this comes along in a hundred years. Saul Hurok, who again, like the guy can do a slogan. Saul um, <laughs> Hurok her- repackages that as her being the voice of the century. And that's kind of actually the way that she's known and introduced and sold and discussed even now. Like I've called her the voice of the century a gazillion times in the past several weeks and talking
2: about. You, you point out the terrible fact that Hitler praised the brutality of Jim Crow America and emulated that dehumanization in drafting the Nuremberg race laws of 1935. Even as an American, Marian Anderson wasn't exempt from those laws in Germany and Austria, which were still the music capitals of Europe. So what happens when she returns to the US triumphant as a singer but still a second class citizen?
3: Well, she comes back triumphant, you know, good, wonderful newspaper coverage of her, the you know, same New York critics who'd savaged her in 1927 are now talking about what a treasure America has in her. But the fact of the matter is, even as a wildly successful and on her way to being quite wealthy performer, she's a black woman in a country that has not renounced or mitigated its commitment to segregation and white supremacy. And so she still finds herself traveling in difficult circumstances, intense places in the South. She still finds herself subject to Jim Crow rules, so doing the kind of things that people do to protect their dignity, eating in her hotel room, so that she um, doesn't have to deal with the humiliation of finding segregated dining, often playing if in sometimes in venues that are segregated among like the audience split, sometimes being relegated to tiny venues because there's no place for a Black singer to perform. So As celebrated as she is in some ways, she's still navigating the kind of dangerous and sometimes brutal pettiness of Jim Crow in the United States.
2: The film brings out that her activism, or she saw her activism, as centered on her artistry. How did she demonstrate that at her concert in Houston? This is a very dramatic point in the film.
1: It's an iconic moment for her that I think resonates with many. One observer who attended the recital uh, noted that, as is custom for concert artists, she acknowledged her her guests in a segregated audience. She acknowledged the white patrons with the, the sort of required bow and acknowledgement, and then she turned toward the African American patrons and demonstrated a notable and lingering bow that really marked her, who she was there to perform for um, as people saw it. And I think those subtle ways, finding a way through body language, through repertoire, through remarks along the way, were her her modes of showing the humanity in, in what she did as an artist. But yeah, it, it, really, it really was a way of her artfully protesting.
3: I was going to say, I'm always a little ambivalent when people describe her as an activist, because I think her self-understanding and self-presentation was really as an artist, primarily, right? So, and, and with the belief that art has power and does work. Um, And then also as a woman who insisted on her dignity, right? Like it's, you know, it is out of vogue to talk about the politics of respectability. But if we think about it in the context of the time when saying I am worthy and worthwhile and you will see what shines from within me, right? In some ways she embodied that. And that ends up doing powerful, occasionally transformative work. But the activism part of her story is really about kind of history or other social movements acting upon her and conscripting her into into these moments.
2: Mm, very well put. What was her relationship with the NAACP?
1: Oh wow, <laughs> <laughs> a long-standing one, right, Adrian? A long, a long-standing and. You never know who is watching, is what we learned through her story. We learned through Mr. White, one of the leaders in the NAACP, that he was present in some of the most pivotal moments in her life, from her debut in the very first Conference of NAM in 1919 to that 1920s recital that fell flat. He saw her, you know, smart from that recital. And he uh, later, in preparation for that, what would be the, the famous 1939 recital, he, as a leader within the NAACP, saw a moment to use her voice as a symbol of um, uh, what it means to be a citizen and what it means to, to take up space. But on the local and national level, the NAACP, had uh, supported Marian Anderson musically through various uh, recitals. And after the recital continued to be huge patrons of Marian Anderson. Yeah, and it should be said, Walter White,
3: Atlanta, right? Atlanta born and, and raised, is a force of nature. And, in you know, a force of nature can sometimes be a little tornado that that kind of barrels and like cuts across you. He's incredibly well-connected. He's incredibly tactical. He knows how to take a kind of moment or a symbol and make a campaign out of it. And that's what he does with Anderson. She's supposed to give a concert in DC and there's not really a good site for her to do it. And White turns that concert into a cause. The thing that strikes me, and the more I think about it, the more salty I think I would feel if I were Marian Anderson. A lot of what we end up knowing is the, the story of her ending up at her concert in 1939 is planned and done and pursued without anyone
2: consulting
3: her, right?
2: Yeah, that that comes out in the film and i was <laughs> right, shocked right. two, three, two, three months later after talking to his BFFs, Eleanor Roosevelt and Harold Right. Dickies, right. Know, she, she's notified, oh, by the right. way, you can sing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Right. I can do who what
3: now? Can't you imagine her? Like, I'm sorry, what?
2: <laughs> well, the documentary builds as a crescendo to the climax of this now legendary concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Would you describe what unfolded there? Um, As we mentioned, she was supposed to do
3: a benefit concert for Howard. She needs a place to have this concert. There aren't a lot of sites in D.C. at the time that can accommodate this. Walter White has the idea of asking the Daughters of the American Revolution to turn over Constitution Hall. The Daughters of the American Revolution say, oh, no, I'm sorry, We, we cannot. And so... The NAACP led by White uses that as a campaign to shed a light on the absurdities and hypocrisy of segregation, particularly on the cusp of conflict with the Nazis who've made white supremacy their rallying cry. White gets Eleanor Roosevelt involved. Eleanor Roosevelt eventually resigns from the DAR and announces it as a protest. That brings national attention to it. They go to Harold Ickes to see if they can use the Lincoln Memorial, like a, another flash of inspiration from White, Ickes and Eleanor go to FDR who says, and what I imagine is this kind of wonderfully careless way, right, this sort of like not super well thought out generosity of a patrician, she can sing, you know, she can sing from the top of the Washington Monument for all I care, and thus, the, you know, the concert is okay, <laughs> at which point they say, oh, hey, Marian, you're gonna do this gigantic outside concert with tens of thousands of people in DC. And Anderson, to her credit, while it might not be what she would have chosen to do, and I can imagine, you can actually see in the film footage, the look on her face that looks like you know a deer in the headlights for a brief second, as you see her sweeping, looking out upon the sea of people, but Anderson, understands that this is a moment that requires her and requires her voice. And, you know, the train has left the station, so she might as well make it a beautiful ride. And there you have it. And thus history is made.
2: Yeah. Professor Jones, would you share your comments from the film regarding the Easter Sunday message?
1: Well, it's interesting. I view that particular moment as a Washingtonian who regularly revisits the segregation laws of that time, thinking about how various artists, whether it was Roland Hayes or the Hampton Institute, or even the cast of Porgy and Bess, various artists had tried to draw attention to the indignity of, of the Jim Crow uh, segregation laws. Uh, Through Marian Anderson, though, we see this beautiful convergence and unfolding of access, of, of platform, of poise, and being ready for the moment. And so when I think of how through that recital, not only did she Uh, gain a larger audience, right? It was exponential, 75,000, right? 70,000 more than what would have been had at the Constitution Hall, not including who heard her through the radio, but she also, in her own way, demonstrated a finer sisterhood uh, by including Florence Price among the men or the male composers that she featured. And so to me, it was an illustration of resurrection. She truly arose in that moment to me, embodying what it meant to truly show up as a Black sister, as a Black woman and citizen of the United States. She arose.
2: You gave me chills in the film and just now. What was the impact of the concert on future strategies of the civil rights movement and Dr. King in particular.
1: Mm, I love that connection that was made really plotting out a genealogy of the use of the Lincoln Memorial at significant civil rights moments. We see in the documentary that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saw the recital at 10 years old. And so it was not lost on him the opportunity to occupy that space again during his literal monumental moment. And he included Marian Anderson uh, to mark and invoice the occasion when he took the stage. And I think it really demonstrates for us how history and um, awareness of space and place can really uh, compound the meaning in what we do as activists and what we do as leaders and as spokespeople. I really think that that was the beauty of, of the documentary to show several genealogies actually of people, places and things uh, throughout. Beautiful thread, a beautiful thread.
3: Right. It's the concert Consecrates the Lincoln Memorial as this space of celebration and as an aspirational space to reach towards Black citizenship um, and Black emancipation. Anderson, again, as this woman amongst the crowd, this diva on the one hand and warm member of the community on the other is something that we see carry forward. I mean, looking at her in that fur coat, I kept thinking of Aretha Franklin (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, yes. And
3: I don't even know, I'm not sure that Franklin was alive in 1939. I think she was born a little bit after, but the, but the images would have been available to her, right? The, the understanding of Anderson in that way, the Anderson's later career, you know, when she is the first person to perform at the Metropolitan Opera, right, that all of those would have also infused other women artists who might have been more outspoken or more activist or, you know, or kind of a a later generation in Black freedom politics, but who couldn't have been themselves if Marian Anderson hadn't been herself first.
1: Right. And, you know, um, there has actually been a writing, I've, I've written about it, Tanisha Ford has been engaged about specifically the symbol of the fur coat, just like you already pointed toward the continuance of that. The fur coat for Black um, respectability and upward mobility not only represented status, but it was an article of clothing that was often bequeathed from one woman to another. It could be from a mother to a daughter or from a mentor to a mentee. Following her wardrobe is actually one way to understand her impact on divas that were to come later, from Denise Graves to Kathleen Battle, her articles of clothing, and even her ingenuity as a seamstress, mending her clothes on the road because of segregation issues. Uh, We really find a lot of her story in those stitches and in what may seem simple to us now. Uh, a her coat, but it really was another nod to her commitment to other women and representing dignity throughout the world.
2: So rich in symbolism, so many aspects of her life and career. Professor Len Smith, I loved your quote in the film, art provides a language of transcendence in hopelessness. I thank you so very much for your participation in this Voice of Freedom documentary and for talking with us.
3: You're so very welcome.
2: Thank you. Professor Alicia Lola Jones and Professor Adrian Lance Smith discussing the PBS documentary Voice of Freedom from American experience. How do visual art and design contribute to our relationship with music? An exhibition at Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta, explores that question. The Future Happened is co-curated by Lawrence Ozerat, a Grammy Award-winning creative director and author, He joins us now via Zoom. Lawrence, welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you. It's fantastic to be here.
2: What is the meaning of this exhibition's title, The Future Happened? Music,
0: or I should back up and say the music industry, has historically been at the forefront of changes in culture, from politics or cultural movements and also commerce. The exhibit is really driven looking at how we can use design and art and creativity to deepen the connections that bond us. Getting back to the title, there's always been groundbreakers in music in our history and now and in our future, and we need to pay attention to those innovations to be able to have deeper and more meaningful connections to music, culture, and each other.
2: So cover art, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of how art and design can strengthen our bond to music. When people shopped for LPs, I mean, part of the joy of thumbing through record albums in a shop was looking at the cover art, and some of that was very sophisticated. Now, with streaming music, what's happened to cover art?
0: As someone in my own practice as a designer, I began over 20 years ago designing cover art at some major record labels, indie record labels, and It's no surprise, everybody started noticing that cover art got smaller and smaller and less and less significant. And the exhibit and the ideas in the exhibit beg the question, what are some of the other entry points through design and creativity that connect us to music? So we wanted to be completely diverse in our definition of this. Yes, we have album covers and traditional graphic design and collage, but we also have dance and film and video and clothing and technological innovation that includes spatial audio and AR and VR, and even acts of meditation and entering kind of a sensorial healing space. The idea of expanding our idea of what the word design means to intentional acts of creativity that have a connection to the visual.
2: Ah, you mentioned healing. The show's organized into five different categories. Healing, power, community, tech, timeless, and Atlanta. Would you elaborate on these categories and tell us why this show is divided this way?
0: We're living in a time where traditional classifications of genre tend to pay attention to our divisions more than the way we are connected. Rather than looking at these classifications, we wanted to look at the way elements of music are connected. Many of these artists share commonalities in these categories. We wanted to look at important functions of music to celebrate and uplift now and today. And and that's the power of music to build community and to bring us together and as far as categories like technology, it was important not just to be two senior citizens sitting on a bench saying, remember when the albums were hit in record stores? That was That was so great. But it's important to consistently look forward. We live in an era where we access music through streaming and that's an incredible invention and utility. But how can we use technical innovation to really excite the mind and inspire and and tell deeper stories and have deeper creative experiences. And we also felt that Atlanta, Atlanta has had a massive cultural impact and it's important to celebrate and share that story. Beyond just looking at hip hop alone, we celebrate this spirit, this creative spirit that has come up from Atlanta, but shared elsewhere as well, of creative iconoclasts figuring out how to do it themselves. You know, we don't need permission from the big gatekeepers in New York or Los Angeles or Hollywood or London that with grit and determination and agency and inspiration, you can do what you want creatively. And Atlanta has given root to a lot of that type of spirit. And you see it in a lot of the cultural iconoclasts that have come from Atlanta.
2: Sajahat one of the exhibitors, won a Grammy this year for his work with burn boy You also won the Grammy for Graphic Design for Wilco's Ode to Joy album, as we mentioned. Is there any more to say about how the Grammy Awards' recognition of visual artists and designers in such a category as Best Boxed Affirm the relationship between art and music.
0: Graphic design, film, and video are a literal extension of the music. It's really wonderful that excellence in that area is is honored and celebrated. When you listen to a song, there's no physical vessel to it. It's this kind of auditory experience that kind of happens in in time, but. The package, the video, the costume that's worn on the stage during the performance, these are the physical extensions of what the art is. It's these kind of visual touch points that give the listener this point of tangibility to identify and connect.
2: As part of this exhibition, audiences are invited on a sonic and walkthrough experience of the original home and studio of Atlanta's Dungeon Family. Would you talk about the Dungeon Family and their influence not only on Southern hip hop, but music and culture overall? Absolutely. The Dungeon Family,
0: one of their largest contributions to hip hop is a sense of a spirit and an attitude. This dungeon, so to speak, was the basement of the home of Rico Wade's mother after being forced out of an apartment in Southwest Atlanta because of noise complaints. And that's what came to be known as the famed dungeon, which, of course, the organized noise family, parental advisory, outcast, cool breeze, Goody Mob, Joy, Backbone, Witch Doctor, Big Rube, and ultimately the likes of Killer Mike and Future we decided to look at the house itself as the work of art, as design lab. So there's a digital walkthrough that the exhibit is all online. And the viewer, the visitor, can kind of walk through the house and hear unique interviews created just for this exhibit with Sleepy Brown and Ray Murray and Rico Wade talking about the original days in the house. And then we had this kind of sonic landscape of what it might have been like to be in the house. So as you as you walk through the blueprint, you hear sounds and, and textures that paint a picture mixed with the stories.
2: Lawrence, you cite historical and ongoing challenges the music industry faces regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. How has design contributed to these challenges?
0: There was a very honest stretching of what the definition of design was and a consistent question of who we celebrate and why. Design is, is a vehicle to understand culture and to experience culture. That does not and should not be defined by a white European standard. We have in the exhibit Lemi who created the album covers for the Nigerian great Fela Kuti. Having a more vibrant mosaic and texture of our stories and our graphic design and our creative output enriches everybody.
2: Lawrence Azarod is a Grammy Award-winning album art designer and co-curator of The Future Happened, Designing the Future of Music, the virtual exhibition from Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta. There are two upcoming performances online, Thursday with DJ Amp Live and another on May 27th with Imogen Heat. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at nine. Tomorrow at eleven a.m., our guest will be Atlanta's own Tony Award-winning actor Shuler Hensley. He'll talk about his work with the ArtsBridge Foundation for arts education. And this year's winners of the statewide awards for high school musical theater that bear his name, the Schulers. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm your host, Lois Wrightsis. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter. Won't you follow me at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S? You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.